You're listening to B2B Nation, a podcast from Technology Advice designed to help marketers navigate the modern B2B buyer's journey. Here's your host, Mike Pastor. Welcome to B2B Nation. Is your organization practicing inbound marketing? I'm sure it is. Inbound is one of the most effective and efficient ways to grow your pipeline and turn your website traffic and social media audience into customers. If you're doing it well, of course. I'm Mike Pastor from Technology Advice. In this episode of B2B Nation, we're going to dive into all the facets of inbound marketing with Andrea Moxham, the founder of Horseshoe & Co., and a practitioner of all things inbound and HubSpot. If you're interested in inbound marketing, need help with your inbound marketing, or you're always looking to learn new things about inbound marketing, this one's for you. We're going to talk content, forms, chatbots, social media, and more. Grab your notebook, put a finger over the pause button, and let's talk inbound with Andrea. Andrea Moxham, <laughs> thanks for being on B2B Nation. Why don't you take a minute and tell us who you are and what you do? Sure. I am the founder of Horseshoe & Co. So we help businesses leverage the power of HubSpot and marketing automation to generate more awareness, leads, and customers. All right. So today we're going to talk about inbound marketing and lead magnets. And let's just get everybody on the same page. How do you define a lead magnet? You know, it's funny that we even still use this term um, as marketers. I think it's just such a backwards way to think about a marketing strategy. I guess, in essence, a lead magnet is really anything that you're providing to a user in exchange for their contact information to get in touch with them later on. I think the definition of a lead magnet probably has room to improve but I guess technically that's the way that I frame it is it's anything that you're giving away in exchange for someone's email address essentially. Right so the way the game has been played for years as we all know is papers, tools like online calculators, things like that, virtual events, etc. Fill out your form, get access to it and then we, we all sort of make this deal. We now have your info, you have the information, Let's see if we can get to the point where we work together. Exactly. Yeah. And I think it's the reason why it's such a backwards way to think about inbound marketing is because it's so marketer driven and not customer driven. And, you know, if you're not new to inbound marketing, you know that the entirety of that strategy is putting the focus on the end user, the customer, and even calling it a lead magnet, you know, it sounds like, well, I'm just going to create anything in exchange to get your information really has nothing to do with the value that you're providing. So I hope that we can ditch that term maybe with 2020 and replace it with something a little more user oriented, but <laughs> the notion I think is still relevant. Just maybe it needs a new term. Right. And I think it also like it puts the focus on that, piece that you're going to give somebody for their information, but getting them to recognize that the piece even exists in the first place is a huge part of inbound marketing, whether that's SEO or email, however you are making them aware of its existence to begin with, the, the content can be great. You can have a very powerful lead magnet. If no one can find it, doesn't make a difference. Exactly. Yeah. It's almost like the mid inbound stage. I think when a lot of companies are getting started with inbound marketing, they're like, okay, so we just need a lead magnet. We need like something slapped together in a PDF that we're 
gating, you know, making available for download and then we're doing inbound, right? That's it, we're done. But there's just so much more to it. So let's talk about content creation. It's a space where I spend an awful lot of my time uh, on the content team at Technology Advice. And I've been doing this for a long time, certainly over a decade at this point, working with all sorts of companies in the B2B tech space on uh, basically developing lead magnets, papers, webinars, et cetera. So I have like a list at this point, right, of pet peeves. I'm going to let me let me throw one out there and then you can throw one of yours out there because we were talking beforehand. I think we both have it's like the anti Santa Claus list here. One of my big pet peeves with content creation is lack of differentiation. Everybody in a space is talking about the same thing and you're not making your brand stand out. What do you got? Yeah, totally. I think I can piggyback on that one and speak to the lack of personalization that goes into content nowadays. I think going on that notion of what do we need to do to get started with inbound marketing, you know, just create the content and then we're done is a lot of ways is a way the way that a lot of businesses approach content nowadays, but businesses and marketers kind of fail to recognize like the unique personas on the other end, the receiving end, and just kind of slap together content that they think is going to resonate with their entire audience without really personalizing it. So that's something that drives me nuts is just creating content really for the sake of creating content. My next one would probably be content by committee. And and I see this a lot where the team putting together content is 10 people, eight people. And my analogy here is always the state of the union. For those of you who aren't in the United States, every year the president of the United States uh, has to address Congress and the nation, usually does it on TV. And no matter who the president is, it is the worst speech you will ever hear because it is not a speech. It is a laundry list of things to check off to please different constituencies and special interest groups. And that's content by committee. You know, let's make sure that this guy in product marketing is happy. Let's make sure that this person in communications is happy and so on and so forth. And then when you go to read the final piece, you get the state of the union. It's, a, it's like a paragraph for everyone. <laughs> that's a good one. I mean, I'm not in the US, but I think the, the same concept applies here in Canada. Uh, another one of my pet peeves is not having a call to action at the end or, you know, even at the beginning or midway through your content. Like if you're creating that content with the assumption that someone is actually reading it, it's not enough to just have them read it and sit with it. You want them to actually take an action and rarely do you actually see the content creator uh, making that ask, telling them what to do next. It's almost like having a phone call with somebody who asks you a question and you just hang up without saying goodbye or scheduling another call or thanks for your time, nothing. It's just a very abrupt ending most of the t- with most content nowadays. Yeah, we've, we've actually experimented with putting calls to action in the beginning of the content. Given content consumption habits these days and how people skim or don't spend a lot of time with the content. If you read the first page and you're interested in my mind to take the next step, I want the next step to be right there. I'm not going to make you or count on you going to page eight. You get interrupted by the phone, by Slack, by whatever messaging program you use. If the first page is as far as you get and you're interested, I want you to move on on that. I like to flag emails that I get from brands, even very small companies that are doing content right. And I've I've flagged quite a few lately where they use pre-PSs. So, you know, sometimes you'll see in emails, the PS is kind of buried in the 
or the call to action is kind of buried in the PS of the email. So you read the content or you're supposed to, you get to the bottom and that's where it says, hey, want to know more? Book a call with me. I'm seeing marketers putting that at the very beginning of the email, like probably before even addressing the reader, which is kind of in line with what we're talking about is if you don't read anything else, at least you come in, come away with knowing exactly what I want you to do next. It's the it's the TLDR, too long, didn't read yep. Of, yep. Of, an, of a business email. <laughs> That's great. I think, the, I think the other pet peeve, and this is, it's kind of a no-brainer, but we still see it a lot, is too much marketing. Too much marketing in the piece, making it about you instead of about the prospect or the customer. One of the things I encourage uh, some of our clients to do here is use second person. Talk to people, not at people. I think that subtle difference actually makes a big difference in how people relate to the content. Yeah, that was my next pet peeve too. I was going to frame it as selling too early. So let's say you loop in someone, you know, with the assumption that they're downloading a piece of like how-to type content, and then you you download or read the piece of content, and it's exclusively either service or product based, based you know on the the, the publisher, the marketer who provided that, and I just feel it's very misleading. Um, especially if you're not going to title it something very specific to your product or service or company. It's amazing how some of these pet peeves still continue. You and I are not the only people talking about these and pointing them out. I think everything you read about online marketing has barked up this tree before. So let's talk about inbound strategies more broadly. So we did a survey at the end of uh, 2020. We surveyed about 100 B2B marketers about their top revenue generating tactics. Inbound was clearly the winner. But we also gave them a list of challenges they face, like difficulty building pipeline, generating enough quality leads, building brand awareness. And nearly 20% of the respondents said they faced all of the challenges that we gave them to choose from. So inbound is their top tactic in generating leads, but it doesn't seem to be helping a lot of them overcome the challenges they have. What do people get wrong about inbound marketing other than the content part, which we already covered? I think... Primarily, and this is a challenge we see with every client we work with, is not giving clear opportunities for people to convert. And it doesn't just boil down to, you know, varying forms on your website, um, but even cross channel. So you could be blogging and podcasting and engaging on social media and um, you know, generating all of this awareness and you're bringing people to your website, but if you're not giving them the opportunity to give you their contact information or to have a conversation with you, that's on you. I mean, that's ultimately why I think a lot of inbound strategies fail. So burying forms is definitely a, a common denominator in these inbound mistakes. I think if you've got one form hidden on your contact us page that someone's probably not going to click as soon as they land on your website. You know, they want to browse around depending on the channel that they came in. They want to see what you do, what you offer before just clicking the contact us page. So if while they're browsing, give them the opportunity to convert. If they see something that they're interested in, whether it's a, a piece of content or, you know, they want to subscribe to get more helpful tips like this, like give them that opportunity and make sure it's super clear. I think that's one thing that a lot of businesses miss out on. And the other that I was speaking to briefly was not 
using a cross-channel inbound strategy. So kind of some of those tactics that I just talked about, like blogging, let's say you put a lot of focus on SEO and blogging. Um, we know that that's not enough. We know that you need to be showing up on other platforms. You need to be showing up where your ideal customers are spending time. So if that's social media, if that's LinkedIn, you need to be spending time on LinkedIn and kind of using it to cross promote um, everything that you're doing in your inbound strategy to make sure that you are kind of approaching inbound in a more cohesive strategy rather than just putting all your eggs in one basket and going after one of these tactics. So that's what I see, I think, for the most part is where businesses that are trying to adopt an inbound strategy fail. I think the other is there's saying that you're doing inbound marketing and, you know, working on all of these tactics, even if it is cross channel, but failing to take into consideration um, how important the customer is and what their pain points are. So similar to what we just talked about with lead magnets, like it's not enough to create a guide that's how to be more productive and putting that on your website and hope that people find it. And in exchange for that download that you take their email address, I I think businesses kind of fail to look at, well, what, what else are we doing to help them actually be more productive? Why are they unproductive? you know, and drilling into those pain points and kind of creating an inbound strategy that centers around helping them and not necessarily just selling. So I think businesses are quick to say, yeah, we do inbound because we do blogging and we're on social media, but I think they, they don't really recognize, well, what are we actually doing that's helping them overcome that pain point, that challenge before selling anything? You mentioned, you mentioned cross-channel and totally agree, right? You've got to get out there on social. Is there a danger that people do the opposite of putting their eggs in one basket, that there are so many social networks? And you know, if you throw in YouTube and LinkedIn and Facebook and Instagram and Snap, you spread yourself too thin? Totally. Yeah. And I think it's important to test out those different channels, especially as new ones surface, because it makes sense to double down on the ones that are working, but you're only going to know what's working by actually experimenting. So we're going through this experiment internally right now. We're trying out some kind of non-traditional social media and marketing platforms that you may not typically see other like our competitors using just to see if it works. So I, I do think that you could potentially spread yourself too thin. So it's best to experiment, but make sure it's like a controlled experiment where you're trying out a new platform for a certain number of months, you've set goals, you are tracking, you know, is this working? What does it mean to be working? And then kind of fizzling out potentially those ones that aren't necessarily bringing in any leads or quality uh, contacts and customers. And what about the forms that you were, you, you brought up a very good point that you can't have one contact us page that allows people to contact you. You might have specific forms for specific pieces of content for those lead magnets that collect maybe different or maybe more information than your standard contact us form. What's the best practice on forms? I've seen many sites with a form at the bottom of every page. Is there a best practice on how many opportunities you should give people to contact you as they peruse your website? Um, you know what I'd love to see is if there was like a sticky form on every website. So maybe it's there like somewhere towards the top 
Um, so you're given that opportunity early on, but it doesn't mean that you're overwhelmed. You know, it's, it's kind of just sticks with you um, as you navigate around the website. So you don't have to go looking for it again, but it's not so intrusive that it's like a pop-up where you can't see anything and you're trying to get out. Yeah, I think forms are another actually area where a lot of businesses don't use them to the capability that they could be, especially when it comes to like qualifying leads. We hear a lot of clients say, oh, well, we have all these practices in place where if we get a new lead, we now have to kind of vet them, whether that's over the phone or sending them a follow-up email. Forms are your gateway into, you know, building a relationship and to determining whether or not that person is a good fit. So why not use that form and kind of pre-qualify your contacts before jumping in to use internal resources to, to vet them yourself. So just speaking about forms a little bit, I have a lot to say with regards to form best practices, but um, yeah, I think like most things, you don't want the form to kind of overpower what you're the goal of your website is, which is probably in addition to generating leads, but also, you know, generating awareness and communicating the value that you provide. So if your form is everywhere on your website, I think that's also another thing that, that you can test, you know, if you put a form on every single page and you find that the volume and quality of your leads goes up, then, you know, it's, it's a, it's a good experiment. You're probably in a situation like that going to see, I would think, that a lot of your form fills are coming from a certain handful of pages or a certain type of page. And it's probably going to tell you, you don't have to have it on every page, but these are the ones that you should probably focus on. You mentioned intrusion when we talked about forms. And that's, I mean, I think consumer media sites are probably the worst offenders in this space, but there are a few sites out there where you get the drift bot and then you get the pop-up for the newsletter sign up. Um, and then you're talking about the form for the piece of content or the contact us form. So you could definitely overdo it. Yes, you absolutely can. Especially if you're not mindful of, like you said, like layering on these different types of pop-up pop-ups. I was on a site the other day where, like you said, I got the chat bot and then I got the subscribe. And then there was these, one of these super horrible, like spin to win type pop-ups. I'm sorry for anyone that's listening that has one of these on your website, but it, it just felt super out of place too. This was like a, a B2B service provider website. And I was like, what am I spinning to winning here? But yeah, you can like absolutely, yeah, you can absolutely <laughs> overdo it with pop-ups and intrusive type lead generation tactics. What is the best length for a form? You know, what plays into that? Because certainly, mm. I think a lot of people want to capture an email address, right? It's an easy win. People will give up their email address, even if they have like a separate free webmail account where they send all of their promotional content. But you also see these like 13 field forms with all these detailed questions about your pain points and your challenges, all of which is great information. But again, there's the balance. I think the length of the form should definitely correlate with the value of what they're downloading or inquiring about. And I think there's just certain opportunities or certain circumstances where people expect to fill out a really long form, like an application, something like that, or like getting an insurance quote, you know, you're not just entering in an email address and you're done. But in terms of using forms to generate leads, I think 
Yeah, it definitely needs to correspond with how much value you're giving away. If this is like a how-to guide, I think it's got to be pretty basic. First name, last name, email. Um, so instead of focusing on like what questions, what I like to do is focus on how are you actually going to use the information that you're collecting at this stage in the buyer's journey? So for example, if you're asking someone to subscribe to your newsletter and you're asking for their phone number, I like to stop and think about, are you actually going to use that phone number? Are you ready to pick up the phone and give that person a call? Are they ready for you to pick up the phone? If not, don't ask that question. Um, and I think another opportunity to reduce the number of forms is obviously I'm a little bit biased, but using a tool like HubSpot that has AI built into it, um, especially for B2B marketing, it's super helpful because what it can do is if, you, if the person enters in a company domain, so like a non-Gmail or Yahoo, they enter in their um, work email address, what HubSpot can do is crawl the, the domain to bring up some really valuable insights like what their annual revenue is and where they're headquartered and uh, how many employees they have, super valuable things that you would probably ask on a form, but now you don't need to because it's collecting it for you. So that's another opportunity, I think. Um, and just being strategic about the types of questions that you ask. So again, like I said, recognizing what are you doing with that information? And I also see a lot of businesses, they'll kind of ask for like duplicate type questions. So there's no sense in asking for someone's work email, but also asking for their company domain, because you can achieve both with asking for a work email address, or even things that you could probably research on your own. Yeah, I don't know that there's a, a rule in terms of this is the number of form questions you should be asking, but something like a consultation or like a contact us definitely warrants asking a couple extra questions because the person on the other end, I, I would think expects to, but for, as we talked about lead magnets, like downloadable content offers, I think it's probably wiser to stick to the basics, um, especially if they're kind of top of the funnel, like checklist, how to type uh, downloads. The to gate or not to gate content conversation has been going on for a long time, right? Yep. What do we do in a world where we see the willingness of people to fill out registration forms fall. Like, so what's, what's the tactic to use? I've got, it's probably not a secret tactic anymore. Uh, what I'm seeing some smart marketers doing is eliminating forms and giving away the content for free, but creating chat bots specific to that piece of content that the person is viewing, which pops up as they're reading it. Um, so let's say using this same example of how to be more productive, um, the chat bot would ask questions to the reader specific to that piece of content. So, hey, how, how are you making out today with your productivity? Hopefully this guide is helpful. I'm here if you have any questions. And that's kind of their gateway into starting a conversation, but not necessarily centered on in order to talk to anybody or even access this, you need to give us your email address. I would love to see more marketers doing this, including our company. How do you think chatbots have changed the game with inbound marketing? 
I think they've had positive and negative implications on marketing and sales. On the positive side, it's given people more options to communicate. I use chatbots all the time because I'm usually multitasking. I don't feel like waiting on hold. Um, I got like a hundred tabs open. So if I start a chat with someone, ask them my question and then I can kind of carry on, but get that answer as soon as it's available as opposed to, you know, having to go back and check my email later. Um, so it's given people, it, it meets customers and, and people looking for answers or support um, another avenue, another channel. But at the same time, on the negative implication side, I think it's created a lot more impatience <laughs> um, because if you've set up a chatbot that isn't really a live human, but you expect it to be because you've got a question and someone has told you that they're available there in your right-hand corner, and then you ask your question and you've got to wait, it, it creates kind of a negative experience, I think, because they don't expect to have to wait. You think, oh, I'm chatting with someone. I'm, I'm instant messaging with someone, whereas that's not always the reality. Not every company's got that, those internal resources to actually have someone who's sitting there waiting for your, your ping, your conversation to happen. I think it's really important to have that functionality available um, especially as we explore the ways that customers like to communicate. I think like 10 years ago, it was by phone. That's it. There was no other, maybe more than 10 years ago, 20 years ago, it was you pick up the phone if you need support. And then email was introduced and it was like, well, you, you can chat by email or by phone. And now we're just expanding these different types of ways to communicate that we don't really know. Like we don't know how our customers want to communicate best. So if you don't give them that option, you'll, you're never going to know. You'll be picking up the phone to, to call your leads when they're like, I'm not ready for this conversation. Can't I just chat in with somebody? A lot of the stuff we've talked about, maybe chatbots are the exception. It's not new, right? The lead magnets are pet peeves about content creation inbound. If you and I were having this conversation a year from now, early in 2022, it take me a while to get used to saying that. 2022. What do you think might be different? What do you think we might be talking about that maybe isn't on our radar right now? Um, I think talking about lead magnets, I feel like forms and gating content is going to continue to fizzle, especially as every company is now migrating their strategy online. There's a lot more clutter, a lot more noise, a lot more emails. People will be more protective about giving out their email address. So I think we'll continue to see uh, more ungated content. I guess something relatively new, and I'm not sure I've taken the bite yet, is Clubhouse. Um, I can't quite get a pulse on whether this is going to be like the next LinkedIn I've dabbled with it a little bit. So I, I don't know for certain that anyone will be talking about it in 2022. It seems like it, you know, based on the traction that it's getting. And I hope to see, or I hope that, you know, if we were to sit down and chat in 2022, we would be able to recognize how much more personalization is happening, not only with marketing, but I think the sales from a sales perspective too. There's a lot of cold emails and cold LinkedIn outreaches and selling too early that I think could probably be personalized in over the, the course of the year to recognize who's on the other end, who, who we're talking to, what their unique pain points and challenges are, and adapting the strategy accordingly. 
So the question that we ask everyone at the end of every B2B Nation episode, I'm going to be, I'm going to make it more challenging on you. Sorry. What is your favorite tool? What is the thing you can't work without? And because you're an inbound marketing guru and you mentioned HubSpot earlier, your degree of difficulty is this. You can't use HubSpot as the answer. So what's the other tool that you can't live without? I guess I'll have to pass. No, I'm joking. Um, I would say my favorite tool is Loom. Uh, I love Loom. I will Loom any opportunity that I can. So for anyone that's not familiar with this, it's a video recording tool that just makes it very, very easy to communicate um, and often replace meetings by you can record your face or you can record your screen or you can record both at the same time, which is what I like to do. Part of our business, I mean, we do HubSpot training. So even quick tutorials become super easy to film. Um, It's been very effective in terms of sales as well. I think it's easy to get caught up in this, you know, if you're in sales, it almost becomes like a routine task to follow up with your leads. So you just send off either like a canned or templated email that's, hey, just checking in here. But as soon as you introduce something like a Loom video where you are personally reaching out to this person and sometimes what I like to do is make sure that because when you send a loom by email it includes a little thumbnail in the body of the email but usually it's just your face like mid-sentence and you look kind of silly so um, making sure that there's something on that thumbnail that helps the recipient recognize that hey this is a personalized video it's not just something that they grabbed from YouTube Um, So whether that's having the person's website on in the background, I've seen some people use looms where they've got like a sign that says the person's name so that they recognize, hey, I should probably click this. But there's so many different applications for loom uh, training, you know, I'll have clients that say, can you help me with this? Can we hop on a quick call? And I say, we don't need to because I'm going to explain it right here in this loom. Um, And it, it just saves a ton of time. So it's a project management, a productivity, a sales, a marketing tool, a business tool. It's, it's, it covers so many bases. I love it. All right. Andrea Moxham, thanks a lot for being our guest on B2B Nation. Thank you so much for having me. That'll do it for this episode of B2B Nation. Thanks again to Andrea Moxham. And thanks again to technology advice friends and colleagues, Amy Dunn, Sarah Wingate, and Emily Whalen. When we're not doing this podcast, we like to rock out to the theme song. It's composed by Pneumonics and the Guild. We'll see you next time on B2B Nation. 